This is Jay Baer from Convince and Convert. Welcome to Season 6 of Social Pros. If you want to learn how big companies succeed with social media, you found the perfect podcast. The show is brought to you by Salesforce Marketing Cloud, inspiring one-to-one connections with your customers through social, mobile, email, web, and advertising. The show is also brought to you by Yext, whose award-winning location management platform helps companies of all sizes drive more foot traffic to their doors and get more customer reviews. And by Convince and Convert, social media strategy advisors and counselors to the world's most interesting brands. Convince and Convert makes your social better. My co-host for the show is Adam Brown. Find all links, archives, and more at socialpros.com. Are you ready? Let's get to work. Welcome, everybody, to Social Pros. This is Jay Bear from Convince and Convert, joined, as always, by my special Texas friend hailing from Austin. He is the executive strategist of Salesforce Marketing Cloud. It is Adam Brown. Man, what a interesting show. We went deep, man. We got into the weeds this week. We got into the, the crazy furniture weeds. And one of the things, Jay, I love about this show is you think about furniture uh, retail and you think, oh, that's a tired, sleepy industry. And it may or may not, but my goodness, what Michael and Kate and the folks at the, the Wellsville Group uh, a Division of Ashley Home, Home Store, a franchisor of Ashley Home Store are doing is really spectacular from a targeting standpoint, from a return and a measurement and an analytics standpoint. Just some really great tips and advice that I think almost anybody in retail or any social marketer can, uh, can write down and begin to apply on Monday completely agree. This is a show that is not only interesting about social media strategy, but also a lot of really great tips on social media operations and social media practitioner tactics. Uh, This is one, especially if you're on the paid side at all, you're going to love this episode of Social Pros with Michael and Kate. Enjoy from the Wellsville Group. As Adam said, they're a licensee of the Ashley Home Store Furniture Chain. Man, this is a good one. Buckle up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Sponsors this week of Social Pros include our friends at Salesforce Marketing Cloud, who have a fantastic and free guide for B2B marketers called The Complete Guide to Social Media for B2B Marketers. Tells you how to use Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and even Snapchat for B2B. Download it for nothing right now at bit.ly slash social B2B guide. That's bit.ly slash social B, the number two B guide. Get it right now. Also, I want to let you know about my brand new book. I could not be more excited. It's called Talk Triggers, the complete guide to creating customers with word of mouth. It's all about how to build a word of mouth strategy tied into your social media that turns your customers into volunteer marketers. I wrote it with my good friend, Daniel Lemon. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. Go to Amazon right now and search Talk Triggers or go to talktriggers.com to see a bunch of special offers just for you. That's talktriggers.com. Also, the show this week is brought to you by our friends at CoSchedule. And I use CoSchedule literally every single day. It is the all-in-one marketing calendar combining project management, email marketing, and social promotion in one place. Imagine that. You get complete visibility over your entire marketing schedule. You can keep your sanity and get way more done with CoSchedule. I tell you, it is all true. Check it out. Go to coschedule.com slash socialpros, coschedule.com slash socialpros, and you will find there a free social strategy template. 
This week on the Social Pros Podcast, not just one, but two guests, ladies and gentlemen, the show cannot be contained. We have both geniuses from the Wellsville Group. They are licensees of the Ashley Home Store. They know more about furniture than any person has any right to. Joining us this week on the show, Michael Malaro, who is the Director of Marketing for the Wellsville Group, and Kate Walcott, who is the Senior Creative Manager. Michael and Kate, welcome to Social Pros. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, thanks, Jay. All right. So everybody understands how this works. Michael, explain to us how Wellsville Group works within the auspices of the Ashley Home Store brand. Well, sure. Um, so Ashley is the number one furniture manufacturer and also number one furniture retailer in the world. Um, they started, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, making furniture to sell to other retailers. It started as simple case goods products like, you know, coffee tables, end tables, dressers, and eventually evolved into a concept where they were making furniture for the entire home, living rooms, dining rooms, bedrooms. In 1999, they decided to take this concept of building a retail brick and mortar store that sold all their own products. So um, that was where they split off into becoming both still a manufacturer and a retailer in their own right. They licensed the concept and now there's more than 150 owner operators that operate more than 700 stores globally, each of which sells only Ashley Home Store product. There are also private dealers, multi, multi-line furniture stores that sell Ashley as well. So you guys in the Wellsville group have 16 stores, is that correct? We have 16 stores, right. We're in seven DMAs. We're in uh, Western and Central New York. We're in Northeastern Ohio and Cleveland, Ac- Cleveland, Akron, Canton area. And we're in Central Pennsylvania, kind of just east of Pittsburgh. Um, we are one of the top 10 largest licensees in the U.S. And we are on Furniture Today's list of top 100 retailers by revenue. It's curious that you've got stuff in New York and then Pennsylvania and then Ohio. You're sort of trying to, you're, you're capturing the, the Rust Belt and then the New York audience. That's, that's the deal. Yeah, we uh, we thought we'd go after the areas that are toughest to deliver in the winter. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, didn't, funny I didn't think about that. Yeah, delivery is usually twenty bucks, but here it's six thousand dollars. Well, there's other. It's funny. There's other licensees that you know. Uh, a good friend of ours has stores like in the Charlotte area, for example. They've got eighteen stores running out of just one warehouse, and we've got six warehouses. So, um, yeah. you know, we're dealing with some logistics that are just they just add a little bit of extra fun and insurance to the process. One of the things I find really interesting, and, and I have a I should. I, I don't think you guys know this. Maybe you do, and, and probably listeners don't, because I hardly ever talk about it on the show. Uh, I come from furniture. Uh, my family started Bears Furniture and Carpets in York, Nebraska, in 1875. Wow! So, family owned for many, many, many generations until it got to my dad, who didn't want to do that. So, uh, I, I was literally spent time as a as a tyke running around a furniture store obviously in the pre-social media days. But one of the things I find interesting about the furniture business is that typically purchases are infrequent, right? You know, you're not buying furniture every Thursday. It's certainly not like a grocery store. So from a social media standpoint, how do you look at that? Are you saying, hey, we want to just use social to build awareness so that when you are ready for a mattress addresser or your guys, or are you trying to spur like, you know what, your couch sucks. You should get a new couch. Like, how do you think about the consumer psychology of a, of a product type that is so infrequently purchased. Yeah, it kind of works for us and against us. I mean, the average life cycle is about eight years. So it's not like, you know, CPG where you're running into the gas station every day for a pack of gum, um, but it's not like a house either. So it, it, it helps us out because we have the luxury of taking our time to build the brand equity on social. And so our funnel process where we, you know, start people and we can give them multiple touch points over and over and over again so that they they become 
uh, familiar with our brand. And when, when that time becomes, you know, now that they're ready to buy furniture, a sofa, a mattress, they think Ashley, hopefully they fall in love with our content and then they come to us. It works against us in the way that, you know, we're, we're investing a lot of money into building uh, a customer base and it takes a while before that, that turns into real customers. But our average ticket's high. You know, it's, it's well over $1,000, whereas for a gas station, it's quite a bit smaller. So um, the, the fruits do pay off when they do pay off. Kate, I'm curious if, uh, you know, because of social media or just kind of the tail wagging the dog, have we seen kind of the business of furniture sales and furniture retail changing? Have we seen kind of a move, I know, with, with some retailers where it's more about the entire room? So you're not going in to buy a couch. You're not going in to buy one piece of furniture, but you're buying an entire suite. Is that, is that still a, a trajectory? Is that still a way people buy furniture? Or do you see kind of all types and all customers coming in, whether it's just to buy a three or $400 sofa ensemble versus a seven or $8,000 new home? Yeah, you know, you really kind of see a little bit of everything, but that's that's the beauty of our social funnel is that we kind of we can break up our audiences to reach everyone. I mean, it's it's uh, probably pretty obvious to almost anyone that's on the internet in the demographic for furniture that places like Wayfair and other things are trying to make the move to online, but we're still seeing that there's that push to want to come in the store and actually feel the product that you you might see it online, but you want to come in and actually feel it before you buy it. And so we tend to take that approach to a lot of our things. And um, we're seeing with the younger the younger demographics that it's a little less about the collections and wanting everything to match. And it's more about finding style that fits you, whether, it, whether it's something that goes in a collection, it's more, does it match my style? Or does, um, does the sofa go with this collection or that collection? It's less, right. of, it's less of that. It's more about mixing and finding your own style we're seeing. And we, even, we see that on our social posts, that anything that's about DIY or or uh, mixing this type of style with this this eclectic look. It's really those perform very well. And to that end, Kate, do you have the exact same inventory across all sixteen locations? And if not, can you only then do social posts for inventory that is? universally held in all your stores, right? I just, you know, you don't want to say, Hey, come get this awesome lamp. Like, Hey, right. bro, we don't have this lamp. Like this sucks. Like, so how does that, how does that work within your collection of stores? And then also how does it work with, with Ashley? Do they sort of feed you kind of corporate stuff that they figure you should have and everybody talks about it? Yeah. So there are some collections are home store exclusive. So we know we're always safe with those that you, you can't get those anywhere, but in an Ashley home store, other places might sell Ashley furniture from the manufacturer, but there are certain collections and pieces you can only get from Ashley. So we obviously do a lot of those. Um, we also, we have a full merchandising team that we work very closely with to make sure that we're putting products out there that are in all of our markets. Um, we tend to have things that are in every market. And so we focus on those. Um, we are anything that's dis, that's discontinued. We have a very close relationship with that merchandising team that helps us understand what what's safe and what's not, when to take things down. Uh, when to replace things with newer collections. Kate, that's interesting. And, and Michael, I'll, I'll go to you for, for my follow-up on that. At, at Salesforce, we have a customer who is a, a fashion brand. They, they make very expensive ladies' handbags and, and things like that. And they have begun to use social listening 
actually in their R&D departments to kind of understand color trends, style trends, things like that. What are people talking about? What are our customers or prospective customers talking about? I'm curious if, if you have seen any of that kind of in the, the furniture industry or, or there at Ashley Home Store. Yeah, definitely. You know, some of our most successful campaigns have been based on listening. It's funny, we spend all, so much time, you know, uh, sitting in a room brainstorming the best content that we can come up with. And what we find time after time is the stuff that works the best is the stuff that somebody else came up with or the stuff that's spur of the moment or we, we see a customer who posted a photo or we see some stupid meme that goes viral that, you know, everyone's making a, uh, you know, an ad like, like the ones we've been seeing recently. But uh, yeah, you know, we just actually started using uh, user-generated content as, uh, as some of our campaigns. And when we're able to put our photos next to our customers' photos of the product in their home, it really speaks to that, that, you know, that we do listen to them and that uh, it influences what, you know, what's popular and it, it drives the trends. Yep. We've, we've seen recently, too, that the more we do with things like from our showroom to your living room, I mean, that's been one of our top performing messages lately. Hmm. So then we're, we're kind of layering that with newer tactics, too, where, um, for instance, we're jumping into trying chatbots. And we're actually using it. It's going to come from my face. And so not an ad, just somebody that's in the demographic and collecting answers about what people are looking for. So we'll, we'll be able to put that out there in posts, get a message back, and then take that data to find out what our customers are actually looking for and then generate new posts out of that. Because there's so many Ashley home stores, you know, some are yours, of course, but as you mentioned, there's many, many other licensees around the U.S. When you're creating content, uh, either organic or paid, how tight do you geotarget? So are you thinking, hey, just this zip or just, you know, a mile around this store or the whole metro area? How do you think about that? It's a little different. I mean, our markets, even the markets we have are different from each other. And, uh, you know, when we when we talk about, let's take our central Pennsylvania market, for example, it's very rural. Um, you know, people are willing to drive sometimes up to 50 miles for a piece of furniture. If you look at one of our more urban markets like Cleveland, where we have six stores within a 25 mile radius, people do not have that same mentality. So we can't take that global approach of saying, all right, well, this is our radius and these are our demographics and this is the furniture we're going to carry and this is what's going to work. So from content to content or radius to radius, it all changes. But with our funneling process and our sequencing process, Ultimately, that, that, that geotargeting is just the first piece. At the, at the top of the funnel, we'll geotarget, but then after that, it's all based on engagement as it goes further mm-hmm. down. And so we might, we might go in with the thought that, you know, hey, the 25 miles is our area of service. However, we might find that, you know, this piece of content's working and that piece of content's working, and, and that's where we take it from there. One of the things that you told us off air is that one of your key performance indicators, the most important metrics that you track in your business at the Wellsville Group is what you call CPSV, cost per store visit. And I'm fascinated about that idea. And and certainly foot traffic in the store is a major, major part of, of what you're looking to accomplish. But how do you attribute that back to social? How do you sort of do that and do the math on that? We've been, we've been embarking on in-store visit campaigns, which have been really, really successful for us. And um, it's, we kind of tie it back to your previous question about radius. Those are where we can get a little more hyper-local. And so we'll, we'll reduce our, our, ge- our geography on those campaigns. And so it might be 10 to 15 miles around, those, around the stores. And so we get really, really local there. And so then we can generate our cost per store visit from there. Um, and our goal is to keep that 
under $10 per store visit. And, and is that a promotion or a secret password? Or, or then when somebody shows up in the store, how, how do you know they came from social? So we've been, our content that we use for it is basically we look at what we call our greatest hits from some of our other campaigns. And then we'll tie that with a little bit more of a promotional message, whether it's some of them are as generic as come check us out at with our address. And then we give them the directions. Others, we might do something little like maybe $50 off a hundred dollar purchase. So we kind of mix it up a little. One of the best things about cost per store visit, we've always tried to measure this. And when we first started with the company four or five years ago, we took all of our advertising spend, we divided our traffic, and we got a cost per store visit of $16. That was what we somehow defined was our sweet spot. And we knew that if we were able to spend our marketing dollars and get our traffic for $16 or less, that we were winning. So when we went into digital and we had a place to attribute that traffic, we had a great benchmark to start with. And you know, being part of Ashley as a big company, having access to Facebook's beta tools like the store visits tool, it's great because there's a lot of ways that Facebook attributes a store visit to your campaigns. They can We give them our data every night. So we can take our offline purchases and match them with our online activity and know for a fact that somebody saw our ad or engaged with our ad and came in the store, or maybe they check into our Wi-Fi. Maybe they check in on Facebook. Maybe their cell phone location services are turned on. There's, a, there's four or five different ways you know, that Facebook can make that cost per store visit. So when we get that down under 10 bucks, we really celebrate because we know that it, it's more effective use of our advertising dollars than traditional media. On top of that, you know, one of the KPIs that we also measure as any retailer, sales-based retailer does is close rate. You know, what percent of the people that walk in the door can we make a sale to before they walk out of the door? And our industry standard is sort of like 25%. That's the average. So if we say $16 is a reasonable cost per store visit, and we're going to close on one out of four people, we're essentially saying that we're comfortable spending up to $64 to acquire a customer at an average ticket. But what we found is with Facebook, when we're getting a $10 cost per store visit, our close rate's also higher. We see the return mm-hmm. on ad spend is tighter because those people are more qualified than just the average Joe Schmo walking in the front door. Well, and 64 bucks is nothing. I mean, the markup on furniture is is pretty significant. And, and so if you can if you can drive a customer at, at 64, you're making money all day long. You make it sound like such a profitable business. I know too much. One, one thing I'm curious about, Kate, is certainly having that, that cost per store visit around $10. I, I think I agree. That's for, for most people in the retail sector, you know, other than consumer, you know, kind of, you know, especially for durable products like, like furniture, that's a great, great number. You talked a little bit about how you're geofencing and, and doing some things like that, especially around the markets uh, that you focus on. Curious if there's any other triggering or filtering that you're doing. I know a lot of kind of companies in the financial services right now are looking for triggers. They're looking for certain words or certain topics being discussed by prospective customers. You know, for financial, it's retirement or a kid going off to college or looking for a new home for a mortgage, things like that. I'm curious if there's any triggers you see in social that might show that someone might be considering a furniture purchase. Maybe it's a new baby or buying a new home or moving or retiring. And are you using any of those types of triggers to kind of create audiences or lookalike audiences that you can then geo-target and then you know, track from a cost per store visit standpoint? Yes, we are. We're doing, we're doing uh, things with triggers with where you have a new movers campaign that we've recently been doing. We actually do that on social. Um, so we kind of mix it up there. We are also, we have audiences that we've built probably over the last three years or so that we also do, we do lookalikes on that. We've spent a couple of years building these audiences. We used to 
we used to go through and almost stereotype our audiences where we would say this type of ad we think this type of person should see. So we created all these audiences. But then as we progressed and started doing the funnel, as Michael was talking about earlier, we've, we've actually taken some of that data and used it in a smarter way now where we put it into our awareness funnel. And then once someone interacts with the videos there, we will send them something else related. And by the time we get them to that point, that's when we'll hit them with an ad. So we, we don't have to be as targeted down at the bottom because we've already hit them with those targets from earlier in our funnel. One thing I'm fascinated about is the idea that the next time these customers who are coming into your stores today to buy furniture, the next time they probably come into your store to make a significant purchase, marketing is going to be completely different and you're going to know who these people are. You will have merged you know, their customer record and know that they bought this sofa four and a half years ago and they bought this dinette set six years ago. How are you looking to kind of bring all that information together to either try to inform decisions today or looking towards the future to kind of invest in those marketing dollars that you're going to save the next time they visit? Yeah, so we actually do that. We, we do that with our email program too, actually. We take, we take that um, offline data that we upload to Facebook and we look at that and create audiences and send them content based on what they purchase. So six months down the road, if somebody purchased a mattress, and we notice they didn't purchase an adjustable base, we may send them something about an adjustable base. And so then we, we are not fully there yet, but we want to integrate that with our campaigns on social and building audiences around those people. So looking at what they actually purchased that we know from our store data and building that right into our audience that can seamlessly go right into our funnel. You know, it's kind of ironic and a little bit contradictory, but even though it's a category where the average customer comes around every eight years, we've also learned through our data that the best customers to prospect are the ones who have purchased within the last six months. And I don't know if it's they still have that new furniture smell in their house, and maybe they got a line of credit for $6,000, and they only spent $3,500, or they realized you know, geez, that, that sofa over there needs to be replaced now too, or maybe that's older than it was. And maybe it's time for a new chair here. And, you know, we're in the betting business as well. And it's kind of gross when you think about the average customer that, you know, comes in has been sleeping on a mattress. that's more than 10 years old, eight out of 10 people are, which is completely nasty. If you, if you learn about the science of, you know, the mattress being a sponge and collecting dead dust mites and body sweat and all kinds of terrible things. So while the people don't come in that often, once they do come in, it kind of does trigger a cycle of like three or four or five return visits in a short period of time thereafter. Yeah, or there's, or there's some sort of life stage change, which is what precipitated the first visit, right? So it's a new house, they moved or, you know, sold their house or upsized or downsized or whatever. Uh, you know, there's usually some sort of inflection point there. It's not just like sort of random, hey, you know what we should do now? We should get ourselves a bed because these dust mites are, I'm up to here with the dust mites. Uh, Michael, one thing you told us uh, pre-show is that you are still uh, heavily Facebook-driven at uh, Wellsville Group. Uh, and, and while there are, of course, other social platforms out there, uh, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, LinkedIn, what have you, YouTube, that, that Facebook is still the workhorse for y'all. And I'd love for you to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, it's still the gold standard of social, right? I mean, a lot of things come and go, but we, we believe that Facebook uh, gives us the most power and versatility in targeting. Now, with Facebook owning Instagram, we do have some of our content overflow. We let that work automatically. We don't decide what works best on which on which piece. But one of the biggest things that that we see when it comes to comparing different social platforms to each other, and this isn't something that we necessarily see eye to eye with all other licensees on, but when it comes to uh, platforms like Snapchat and Pinterest and, and Instagram uh, from an organic content or from a customer interaction um, 
position. We, we believe that our guest wants to interact with not us as a licensee, but with the parent brand. They're going to take a picture of their uh, coffee cup and say, at coffee shop, I got your you know, green cup in my hand. They're not going to say, at coffee shop 6255 Wichita. You know what I mean? So I think it sort of does a disservice to the parent brand. If you really want to be omni-channel and you want to respect the fact that that's a global brand uh, and has the same look and feel across the country, regardless of who owns the store, that in those individual channels, you have to uh, you know, treat it like how the customers would and, and not confuse them by having 800 different handles. That being said, on Facebook with individual pages within our parent-child network, we think it's the best way to both give our customers incoming, uh, an easy way to find the store they bought at in case they want to continue the conversation, or for us as an outgoing message to be able to say to our customers, all right, this is happening at this store, this location is a grand opening, we're giving away cupcakes here, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of reasons for Facebook that we need that diversity. And for the other platforms, we let the corporate team take care of it. Another thing we've we found is just using video is is just priceless because we can build up a content of what we call evergreen content that we can use almost regardless of platform. I mean, if we, if we have it on Facebook and we see it's performing, we can throw it in our library of things to reuse and just whether it's on YouTube or wherever else we want to use it, we've got it, it's ready to go and we can, we can have our choice really. Speaking of, of the Ashley brand, Michael, is there ever any issues where one of your customers is, is following your Facebook content, but then sees something similar, or maybe something different from quote unquote corporate? It, it, do you ever have any of that sort of channel confusion? And, and how do you sort that out and make sure that happens as, as uh, least often as possible? There's not much of it. There used to be quite a bit more. Back before Ashley had the parent-child setup where the pages were all linked together uh, under the locations tab, we did have some confusion. As a matter of fact, when we first started, we had one Facebook page and it was called Ashley Home Store of Northeastern Ohio and Western and Central New York and Central PA. It was just this long and unholy title. And, you know, there were, there were other licensees in Cleveland and Pennsylvania and New York, and they would get questions for us. We'd get questions for them. Um, there'd be, you know, one-star reviews of, on the wrong page. And it was a nightmare. Once we had that parent-child setup, though, it's pretty clear which store you're talking to. Um, once in a great, great while, but that's been mitigated quite a bit. Michael, you mentioned uh, reviews, and, and that's something that's near and dear to all of our hearts in, uh, in social media marketing ma- and management, especially that when you have an example like that where someone misreviews when they've had an issue of the wrong store. How are you dealing with both listening to, to reviews on the multiple platforms, and what is your process and protocol for managing those, or does that happen kind of at the Wellsville Group, or is that all handled at corporate? That's all done by us individually, and man, we really uh, blazed a trail in 2017 with reputation. In 2016, at that time, we only had 13 stores, and over the course of the year, we had 165 reviews, so basically one review per store per year. And as you can imagine, I mean, you guys are experts in this field, but we got more complaints than we do praise because that's just how people behave. Unless you ask for that review, you're not going to get it. So in 2017, we wanted to change the news boost our average score, which was 3.25 stars. Our digital net promoter score was around zero. We weren't very happy with that. So in 2017, we made it a mission to educate our sales force on the importance of collecting those reviews. We spend a lot of time with our customers, you know, an hour, two hours, sometimes four hours. We definitely earn the right to ask for a review. We definitely give them a five-star experience, so we don't have to incentivize and coupon. You know, we're very ethical about our collection, but we were diligent about switching between Google and Facebook. Those were the two platforms where we really focused. And by the end of 2017, we had more uh, reviews per capita than any other licensee in North America. We had 2,700 reviews, and our DNPS was 75. 
our uh, our um, average starting was 4.62. It was huge for us. And you know, we we had to incentivize our team, right? Because they didn't they didn't necessarily believe it and understand it. You know, so we would do these like big break room displays where we set up candy and chips, and you know, we give them pizza parties and all this stuff. But the tables turned after a little while because when we started to get a giant cache of positivity in our reviews, you started to see customers come in and say, hey, I'm here to speak to Jay. I'm here to speak to Adam. I'm here to speak to Robin or whatever. And so the way our, our customer up system works is that all salespeople go on a list and you go in that order and you just get whoever comes in the door when your turn is up. But if somebody comes in and asks for you by name, well, you jump right to the front of the line. So it kind of rewarded those salespeople who, you know, review acquisitions seriously somebody come in and they say hey adam i'm uh i'm here to see adam and adam walks up to the front of the store and is looking at a complete stranger and there's and they say yeah what are you here for well i saw online you were the guy i had to talk to you had the best reviews and all of a sudden that was that moment where they're like oh my god that's it i'm a believer because you know the pizza parties are nice but now we're talking hundreds of dollars in commission Commission. Right. Yeah. In a commission business, that's, that is huge. In fact, I'm a, an advisor, uh, along with Shep Hiking in a business called service guru, which, uh, similar kind of idea where you've got a kiosk at the front uh, door of the business and, and on your way out, you sort of do a net promoter score survey. And then you, you put, you, you press on the photo of the person who helped you. Right. And so it kind of does that self-fulfilling prophecy of, of, you know, it's not just how did the store do, but how did the individual do? I think it's a real future in customer service. One quick follow-up, Michael, I wanted to know, where you put most of your emphasis in terms of review location is it yelp is it google is it angie's list or house or something else where, where do you really say hey this is where we want to make sure uh, i know the answer is probably everywhere but but where, where what's your preference no you know it's 50 50 on google facebook now when we started it was google facebook yelp we had uh we had some some real challenges getting our reviews to stick with yelp despite our uh ethical collection mm-hmm. procedures. Yep. Um, and that was kind of frustrating. You know, if it weren't, you know, the, the biggest problem with Yelp is that I, for all the Apple iPhone users, it, it populates in the Apple Maps as the score. And that's where we really feel like we need the most help. Other than that, we know that Google and Facebook have a lot more uh, presence to our customers. And, you know, for the longest time, we kind of did both of them at the same time. We found it was a lot easier for our sales team if they focus on one at a time. So we kind of do like Q1, Q3, we'll focus on one of those platforms and Q2, Q4, we'll just switch to the other one. Okay, I kind of want to keep on this, uh, this trajectory of talking about reviews and talking about salespeople and kudos to, to you and Michael for everything you've done in terms of getting those salespeople excited about social because that is such a huge part of any kind of cultural change that has to take place at, at a company like yours that's making the, the big transformation. My question is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Once you get salespeople excited about this, then they begin wanting to participate in social media. Maybe they're talking about promotion this weekend at a particular store. And that inevitably brings up the challenges of, of governance. That brings up the challenges of what happens when that really great salesperson goes to the other furniture store across the street. Curious if you've all thought about that and if you've put any kind of of governance in place to enable or empower your sales professionals to be those spokespeople on behalf of the company. Yeah, we definitely, we've definitely put thought into it. And we have, before we started any of this several years ago, we went down the road of creating a social media policy that has gone into every employee's handbook. And when they are, when they're brought into the company, it's gone over with them that what's acceptable, what's not. We have a set of guidelines, what you should share, what you shouldn't. And we're totally fine with our salespeople putting it out there as long as it's in a, a manner that respects the company rules. And as long as they're, they basically aren't supposed to act 
ever respond as if they're the marketing team from Wellsville Group or speak as if they're the National Ashley brand. And they all kind of know that. But we put so much value in having them as part of the process that we, we really haven't seen that many issues with it. There may have been a few where we just kind of offline tell the person, hey, kind of can't do that if they've done something. But we've really kind of few and far between has that happened. And I think that's because along the way, we've really educated the sales team because we've, we see that as they're our, they're our most valuable asset as far as their faces being out there. And the, we found the ones that do make videos, for instance, they're happy to do it and they're happy to participate and follow the rules because they're seeing customers come in, just like Michael said. And so it's kind of a back and forth. We appreciate them doing it and they've appreciated given, being given the opportunity to participate. Now, I was, uh, uh, we were looking for a mattress uh, over the weekend and we actually bought one. So we went to a couple of furniture stores and we did just like we're talking about today. Caroline and I were pulling out our phones and, and looking at the reviews and we went to one mattress store and it said, you have to ask for Jay. Uh, yeah. And his name was Jay. It's not, <laughs> not Jay. Sorry, It's about definitely it. not me. Not you. Uh, at the Sleep Number Store, you have to ask for Jay. And certainly we did. And very quickly, we realized you know, why. It was a great experience. And you know, talk about a, an organization that's doing some really interesting marketing on a product that has, I can only assume, markup like there's never been markup before. But it, it did fulfill this whole idea of how important uh, that is. And, and that brings me kind of, Michael, to my last question. I know the other big metric that, that uh, all of you are, are focused on is return on ad spend. And ROAS is a, a big metric that many of our listeners probably use. You're kind of focused in and around a 20x metric. And just like Jay asked for the cost per uh, store visit and how you roll social attribution into that, I'm curious, Michael, how you kind of roll social attribution into your ROAS. Yeah, so uh, 20X is is what where our standard of excellence is for for return. And, you know, it is high. I mean, a lot of businesses are satisfied with the 2, 3, 4, 7, 8 uh, X return. Uh, but for us, it's a it's a large ticket item. We have to spend a lot to to get that return. So we try and, and look at about a five percent uh, spend would be our marketing budget. So you know, for a hundred million dollar company, we spend about five million dollars. So you know, there's your twenty x. If we can do it there or better, we're doing it better on social. Now, what we found is that when we first started, you know, we didn't even have offline conversions. So we used you know, like tertiary strength metrics like CPE and things like that. And we thought we were cool because we knew, you know, something costs less than 30 cents per engagement, but we didn't know if it drove a sale or not. Once we got the offline conversion set up, uh, we, we found out that very quickly by funneling our content and, and sequencing our audiences the way that we have, that the further you push somebody down the funnel, sensibly, the higher the return on ad spend. And what we see now is that in our bottom funnel content, where we want to pump as much of our advertising dollars as we can, it's not uncommon for us to see returns of 60 or 70x on our top performing pieces. And it's, it's so funny because one, one of our best performing ads is the most hideous piece of creative. It's got a, a color of a sofa that we don't sell anymore on a discontinued rug. There's a plant in the foreground. It's a little blurry. I mean, it's just like amateur town USA photo. And two years ago, if we were sitting in a room looking at this, we would have been like, no, scrap that. It's ugly. No one's going to buy that. It's a terrible photo. And it's still a struggle, right? Because we're all creative people and we all think we know what's going to perform. But we just can't bring ourselves to pull that ad because it's making us money hand over fist. Um, So that's one of the tough lessons we've had to learn. And uh, and that one's still running. It's discontinued, but can't do it. We've actually, to the to that point, we've actually tested it 
multiple times because as like Mike said, the creative, the creative type in you hates to see this hideous photo, even though it's performing and we know it's making tons of money, <laughs> but we've, so we've run, we've run some different t- types of tests on it and time and time again, let me tell you that photo outperforms any photo, anything we use. I mean, we have, we have our, our corporate brand has rented out mansions and taken beautiful, beautiful professional photography time and time again, the ugly photo wins. Well, I mean, there's something to be said about that, right? It's that, real. But yeah, that's exactly it. When it's too polished, the customer can't necessarily see themselves in that imagery, mm-hmm. right? So, so sometimes you overshoot it from a professionalism standpoint, and, and maybe it's the plant. Maybe that's the real takeaway here. Mm-hmm. All, every, every image is a plant in the foreground. Plant. Yeah. And I mean, we've even done, I mean, we've tried audience. We've done different audiences. That campaign actually started out as we target it to people that are, for instance, they like big lots or things like that. And obviously it's going to do well in that, in that category, but we've tested it everywhere and time and time again, it wins. Yeah, what's remarkable to me, Michael and Kate is, is that story. And in an industry that, you know, we've, we've all gone and bought furniture and you don't think of it as a high, high tech uh, type of industry, but you're using really shrewd science and great creativity to come to that. And for us to be having this discussion on how you're doing message testing and image testing and AZ testing on creative and actually informing what you're doing and what you're talking about is, is pretty remarkable. Other piece of, I think, that remarkableness is how you actually got to where you are right now. I love the story about how you both kind of started as consultants and then kind of as an agency and then became embedded into, uh, into the organization there at Wellsville Group and, and Ashley Home Store. Michael, I wonder if you could, you could share a little bit about how all that happened. Yeah, we've, we've got this weird story. We tell everybody our story because we're, every time we sit down with, with vendors and we start picking food out of each other's teeth, people give us weird looks. But, uh, you know, we've known, Kate and I have known each other for 30 years. Our, our parents used to work in adjacent classrooms in the same school and carpool to work together. So we've been friends since elementary school and middle school and high school. We went to the same college. We went to the same grad school program. We both moved to the same town, bought a house in the same street, uh, got a bank account together. I mean, it was stupid, right? Like we do people, everything. Except- people think we're married. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's not uncommon to get congratulated for each other's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not making children, but everything else, right? So we've yeah. always we've always worked together, and uh, so for us, we decided about five six years ago to form an agency. You know, Kate uh, always led a creative agency, and I had a strategy group. And uh, the the things that we were the best at were the gaps in each other. So when we came together. Uh, and made our our agency brand crush in, in Buffalo. Um, it was great, and we've had we've had a great time uh, working in all kinds of different industries. And so Ashley was one of our clients, and it just came to be that you know I didn't think it took them long for them to figure out they could probably uh, save some money by not paying our hourly rate and instead uh, try and get us on the payroll. So uh, even though the company's 51 years old this year. They didn't have a marketing team up until five years ago. So we joined their team. We were no longer a vendor. We became uh, employees and we built our team from there. We now have seven working on eight people on our team. And uh, it's occupied the lion's share of our time to the point where we're really only able to uh, help another group uh, one or two at a time. That's great. What a fantastic uh, story and congratulations. It really is. uh, Yeah, it's really, it's an inspiration. We're going to ask you guys the two questions that we've asked everybody here on the Social Pros Podcast, going back now 300 and however many episodes it is. I always forget what episode number that we're on. I'll, I'll start with, with Michael. What one tip would you give somebody who's looking to become a social pro? Other than, other than do whatever Kate says, which is probably the real tip. That is a good tip. 
You know, we hear this a lot because our, our industry, the furniture retail industry is super old school. I mean, it hasn't changed a lot. We always joke about how our industry is basically 65 year old men deciding what 30 year old women want in their living rooms. And, you know, there, there's such a lack of evolution when it comes to marketing. We hear from all of our peers and all of our friends that own furniture companies. Well, we don't know where to get started on Facebook. We can't do it. We're so far behind. We don't even have a we have a page. They almost seems like they feel like they're under a, a mountain and there's they're just so far behind they can never get there. And what we've learned is that, you know, even though Facebook's only been around for like what, 12 years now, 13 years. And you can start today and still be an early adopter. I believe the platform is still in its infancy. When you look at the life cycle, you know, I always do a presentation in our stores and I always show about how slow television evolved. Use Back to the Future as an example. Back in 1955, when, you know, he crashes through the barn, they're all sitting around the dinner table looking at the TV. 30 years later, they're still sitting at the dinner table watching TV, only it's two inches bigger and it's got color. So media evolves very slowly. And so for all the people that think that they can't do it, you just get in there and play around and you learn and it won't take long to figure it out. That's fantastic. And I, I think you're, you're dead on. I love your line about 65 year old men trying to decide what 30 year old women want in their living rooms. That's, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, Kate, last question is for you. If you could do a video call with any living person, uh, who would it be and why? Okay. Maybe, so at the expense of sounding a little bit like a fangirl, I think I would have to say I'd love a video chat with John Mayer. I'm a big fan. Michael is too. Um, but I also think he, he's an artist in more ways than just being um, a musician. He's really great at marketing. I mean, if you look, look through him throughout the years, he's reinvented himself. He, he understands branding probably better than most musicians, I would say, and maybe more than most business owners. Um, he's just, he, he uses his brand to sell more records and he just keeps changing and attracting a new audience. And I think it's, I think he's a genius. That's a good one. And I don't know if we've ever had John Mayer. We and have not had John Mayer we'd before. To, we'd have to consult the database, but that's a good one. He is a really good marketer and certainly he is. Is, mm-hmm. and has now been doing it long enough. He's one of those artists and there's not that many of them who's now sort of standing the test of time as well. Which, yeah, he's which kind of quietly, probably one of the best guitar players living. All right, there you go. That's a good answer, Kate. We need to. That's okay, Adam. Let's work on that. Get the uh, the when we get to the musician uh, portion of our uh, of our calendar. Yeah, you'll have to get him on the show now. Yeah, hasn't John Mayer played Salesforce some sort of conference? Uh, I imagine he's been at Dreamforce or something. I, I'm sure he's he's done an opening act somewhere. Yeah, you got to talk to somebody. You can make yeah. that happen. I'm I'll sure. see what I can do. You can do it. Well, Mike, that would be incredible. Yeah, we'll let you know. <laughs> let me know about that one. <laughs> yeah, Kate, we'll, we'll, you'll be the second to know, I'll tell you that. Yes, second thank to know you. for sure. <laughs> I Kate, appreciate thank that. You so, Kate, thanks so much for being here. Mike, you too. It's been terrific, really fun show. And congratulations on all the terrific, terrific success uh, on everything you guys are doing out there. It's it's really spectacular. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. We love, we love the podcast. And we're glad to be part of it. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Our pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been this week's episode. Adam and I will be back next week with a very special show. Adam's going to interview me uh, about uh, my new book, Talk Triggers and the Power of Word of Mouth. So we're going to uh, switch it up a little bit. That will be fun. So until then, I am Jay Bear from Convince and Convert. He is Adam Brown from Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And this has been your very favorite podcast. It has been Social Pros. Don't forget socialpros.com for every single episode going back way, 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 way into the archives all the transcripts, the links, all that jazz at socialpros.com. See you next week. 
Thanks for listening to Social Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to socialpros.com for a complete show archive and for our greatest hits. Social Pros is sponsored by Convince & Convert, Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and by Yext. And it's produced by my team and I at Convince & Convert Media. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, visit us at convinceandconvert.com.